0: What you're about to listen to may include some potty talk. Then again, it may not. I hope it does, though. It's Wednesday, December 4th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Unpopular opinions. The theme today is unpopular opinions. I have a couple. No, not the pro-plastic straw thing. That's actually a popular opinion, just not among the social set. The names there twin Weimaraners, Frida and Diego. No, I mean stories like this about a high school teacher in Texas from a few months back. Now, Georgia Clark had been an English teacher at Fort Worth's Carter Riverside High School here, for 21 years when she fired off a series of tweets on May 22nd. Take a look. So Clark's deleted these since, but she tweeted at President Trump writing things like, Fort Worth ISD is loaded with illegal students, drug dealers are on our campus, and the Mexicans refuse to honor our flag. Once administrators saw these tweets, they put Clark on administrative leave. And last night, the school board voted unanimously to terminate her. Since then, Georgia Clark appealed to a state board and yesterday was announced she would have her job back. I mean, the school district's still fighting it, but that's what the state says. Now, I watched testimony of parents in the district arguing that Clark's tweets and other allegations that she demeaned, especially Latinx students, went on. I watched that and the overarching argument was that this behavior effectively denies children their right to an education, meaning if you're a child and your immigration status is in question, you might not want to attend school if you know that Georgia Clark is there as a teacher. I'm sympathetic to that argument, but I have to say I agree with the teacher. I don't agree with anything she's saying. She's advocating horrible policies. I wouldn't want my kid to have her as a teacher in a better world. Someone like her would not be teaching at all. She'd be tweeting a lot less too, but weighing in on a public policy debate with what is actually a fairly popular opinion should not get you fired. I mean, depends on your job, but if you're a tenured teacher, this should not get you fired. And what she was arguing, what she was literally arguing was that the government should follow its laws. Perhaps she was too literally arguing that, but that's what she was saying. I do think that the issue requires a lot more subtlety and a lot more thought than just follow the law and what part of illegal don't you understand? And I also think that it's not good for a teacher, especially one in a school district with a large Hispanic population, to advocate for those positions. But if she did and she did, she should not be fired. It's not popular. I hate to say it. I don't think she should be fired. Now, parts of Clark's defense was that she thought that only President Trump could see her tweets because they started with the at Donald Trump designation. Now, I have to say, I did not believe that she thought this. And then I saw an interview with Clark, and I changed my mind. I do believe she's that stupid. Here is some of that interview.
1: Do you regret the tweets? No, I don't. You stand by them? Yes. Because, frankly, God was saying, it's time. You need to do this now.
0: God is apparently an idiot. Perhaps his high school teacher was Georgia Clark. On the show today, the first day of impeachment hearings convene, and one professor stands alone to profess what in his professional opinion is true, that Trump should not be impeached. The congressional Republicans all seem to respond well, which is fair. It was a good argument. You know, it's not like the professor was once on the Republicans' payroll. Oh, wait, he was. But first, speaking of dysfunctional political shenanigans, let's take Garrett Modi, the former Queens councilman, was disgraced when he was caught on camera trying to bribe a cop during a traffic stop on the BQE. Sounds familiar, right? Yeah, it's the plot of the NBC sitcom Sunnyside. Star and producer and guy whose actual name is Cal Penn-Modi is here to discuss. But you might know the former Obama administration official and titular Kumar of the Harold and Kumar films simply as Cal Penn. Not since former Undersecretary of the Treasury, Stuart Eisenstadt, took a sabbatical to reprise his role uh, as Undersecretary Number no. 2 in a Smokey and the Bandit sequel. Has a White House staffer done what Cal Penn did in 2010? He left the White House for a little while. He did a very Harold and Kumar 3D Christmas. Then he came back. Cal Penn is a political operative and also a creator of very witty television shows, including the new Sunny side, in which he plays actually a disgraced former politician who tries to make good by helping a ragtag group of immigrants stay in this country. If you haven't seen it, it's got the community good place Brooklyn 99 vibe. in fact, Mike sure, one of the producers of those shows is also on this show, Cal Penn's here. Thanks for coming on, Cal.
2: Thanks for having me. I got is is that example accurate? No, the, the stewardizes that? Yeah, no, okay, I, um, because... He's my go-to
0: secretary of the Okay, I was like, the wait, treachery.
2: because the... the <laughs> I, I, my, my go-to response when yeah. someone's like, you're the only person who's ever done that, except for President Reagan. I was like, well, there's also Ben Stein. But Ben Stein is sort of an awkward example, but also a great one because he was yes. a speechwriter. Obviously, like, huge Republican conservative operative. You know, like, I, I kind of took two and a half years off of playing a stoner or a doctor. <laughs> ben Stein is the real deal of having gone back and forth into those. Yes.
0: Moments. But, you know, removing Ben Stein and his monetary philosophy from the Ford administration, <laughs> that was probably the best thing he's ever done this
2: right,
0: fair. <laughs> um, so, did you want to do this because you wanted to tell a story of immigrants in America today? Was that the main thing?
2: The main. So, I co-created the show with Matt Murray, who's who's my uh, my writing partner here. And um, no, I think the biggest reason that we created the show was I was on a short-lived sitcom about five years ago. So, imagine now. Obviously, this is a timely immigration sitcom. But five years ago, things. At least in the media weren't quite as polarizing as they are now, mm-hmm. right? And that show ended and my producing partner said, uh, hey, what's your dream scenario? Like what's your dream show? I said, well, if I if I was going to do a dream show that I would create, yeah. it would first of all be about a semi-likable, unlikable, flawed character, sort of like Donaghy from 30 Rock that type of a character, but it would take place in New York City. It would be- Maybe not
0: so self-aware because there's all those jokes there. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Yes.
2: No, right. Not not yeah. as self-aware, but certainly aspirational and the kind of comedy that you can watch and feel like you're hanging out with a bunch of your friends. I also grew up watching, you know, Seinfeld and, and shows that take place in New York but are very homogenous. And I grew up right outside of New York City, never really saw communities like mine on TV. And I thought, well, there's got to be a fun, like, now that said, look, I can't tell you how many- Indian uncles, there are who remind me of Jason Alexander's character. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, there are just so many Costanzas. Costanza is universal. Well, I don't have to tell you. The Indian and Jewish <laughs> Oh, it's you know, the overlook. I grew up crazy. in New Jersey. It's like. You grew
0: up in Montclair, right?
2: I was born in Montclair. I grew up uh, right outside of Freehold.
0: Montclair is like the most diverse town in New Jersey,
2: and Sunnyside is the most diverse place in America. Exactly. Queens is the most diverse place in America. So it was a combination of like, A, you, you know, you write a comedy, you just want to make people laugh, period. Right. Obviously, in the last five years, I took three years to go do a show in Toronto. I was on Designated Survivor. Came back from that, and then only in the last year started seriously developing Sunnyside with Matt Murray and Mike Schur. And then we sort of thought, okay, we still don't want to make it a reaction to the current administration. Right. But there are stories here to tell and there's humor here with this crazy band of immigrants who all become friends in New York City, the same way that like Curb Your Enthusiasm was just this like crazy flowing comedy. And so we decided that that was the best setting for it, the most diverse place in America, you know, at a, at a time like this. Um, yeah. So it was, it was a combo of both. Now – that said, obviously, I'm not, you know, we don't live in a vacuum, and and I am incredibly honored that we had, Writer's Room just ended because we just finished the first season, so we have the most diverse Writer's Room, the most diverse cast. We're told in the history of television, uh-huh. which would have made a kid like me proud anyway, but especially given how polarized the country is, it's been super exciting.
0: Now, there must have been, there definitely was discussion of, you have these characters and you definitely want to be sympathetic to them, but it's a comedy, they have to have flaws, but you know, there's something a little bit perhaps fraught if the flaws are A, stereotypical, or B, you know, a bit of a mockery Mm -hmm. of the characters. And yet at the same time, you know, every good sitcom mocks its own characters. So what was that like? Were there lines? Were there questions about like what kind of funny accents to lean into or not lean into?
2: Yeah, great question. So I am not of the belief that this binary conversation of is a character positive or negative in terms of representation I'm not of the belief that that's helpful to anybody. Yeah. If anything, it makes content boring and dehumanizing. There's a, this old adage that I think John Cho talked about a lot where he's like, you know, I'm so sick of people offering me the part of the good Asian cop. Yeah. Like, what's the point? So he's a good Asian cop? Like that's just as dehumanizing as as a stereotype that people have seen over and over again. Like make him interesting for some reason. Give him flaws. Make him terrible for the reason that all of us are terrible in our deepest, darkest parts of our soul. You know, like all of that. So for us, I think part of it was, look, every single writer is either – an immigrant or the immediate family member of an immigrant, and by the way, super easy to do. There's this misnomer in Hollywood that it's hard to find diverse casting or diverse writers room. Not true. Our mandate was bring us the funniest people and also people who could relate to this material and make our stories better and that's who we ended up finding. Same thing yeah. with the the cast. The cast is the most diverse cast in TV history for a reason and it it's not tokenization. We live in an industry that often confuses tokenization with true representation. So getting those stories out, I think having a writer's room that has either lived those experiences or seen their parents or a spouse live them. It's little things like – so Damir and Dario, these two Bosnian-American writers we have, they're obviously hilarious, which is why we we hired them. But they told this story one day in the writer's room about – the conversation was like, hey, anybody have any weird things your like parents or grandparents did when you got sick? (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) And they moved here when they were like 10 maybe, 8 or 10. They have these memories of being like 11, 12 years old in America – you know, they've got the flu, and their mom cuts up onions and puts them in their socks with vinegar and tomatoes or something, and like puts the socks on their feet. They're shivering. Yeah. It's terrible. <laughs> They're sick, and now they smell like vinegar and onions. So, we used an aspect of that in a conversation between Brady and Hakim. Hakim's the Ethiopian cab driver doctor where Brady actually Brady's was. Moldovan Brady's Moldovan not Bosnian to be clear no, no. Brady's <laughs> Moldovan, Moldovan doesn't know that he's undocumented he's the yeah. DACA recipient and is a a frat boy who we like sort of assume might even be alt-right in a different reality uh-huh. <laughs> but we don't know for oh, sure interesting. just because he grew up not even thinking that he was anything other than like American born white guy who's right. in a fraternity but they have this—they have this funny conversation where he goes, uh, he says to Keem something like, um, "Hey, your parents ever do weird things like this?" And he talks about the sock and the, the home remedies, and Hey goes, "Oh yeah, in Ethiopia we had something very similar, except we preferred antibiotics." <laughs> you know, so it's like the even the end of the joke is—it's almost a hat tip to like things that immigrant parents have done based right. in reality, and then the characters themselves are based on real people. So that that Brady character is based on a kid I met, Russian uh, immigrant. Didn't know he was undocumented. His parents overstayed a visa when he was a little kid. When he was 16 or something like that, he went to the DMV to get his learner's permit almost as a surprise to his family. And the DMV fi- finds out that he's undocumented and freaks out, goes home. His parents acknowledge that he's undocumented. A couple of years later, ICE picks him up. The, uh, this was during the Obama administration. ICE picks him up, throws him in detention. He got picked up while he was teaching English to inner city kids in Detroit. Like that's – there's nothing more quintessentially American than another American teaching you English, right? Especially when they weren't the native-born American and you are. So this guy spends however much time in in ICE detention and it was, of course, terrible. The Brady character is loosely based on him and a number of people I met when I was working on the DREAM Act. So
0: you're a member of the Obama administration. This is being done? you have to, we have to f- carry out the laws, but it's yeah. being done in the name and at yeah. the direction of the Obama administration. Yeah. He knows you. What do you do? What can you do?
2: I can't do anything because my role there, I mean, you're in the administration to so sort of keep your head down and do your work. And I think the president for better or worse, obviously hindsight is phenomenal nowadays, but the notion that you're simultaneously there to execute the law while you change the law. So the executive branch executing the law that exists while advocating for legislative change. I remember this with yeah. Don't Ask Don't Tell and the DREAM Act, you know, both of which I worked on peripherally on outreach. Both of the votes were the same Saturday. We were all in the West Wing watching the votes come down. And up until the votes, both you know, the huge push from the LGBT community saying Obama hates us, and if he didn't hate us, he would sign an executive order that eliminated the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Same thing with the DREAM Act folks. Right. And his argument for both of them was If I sign an executive order that says this, then the next president can undo the executive order, which is exactly what happened, right? right? And so thankfully, you know, there was a legislative fix for the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Unfortunately, there wasn't for the DREAM Act, which everybody forgets fell short by five democratic votes. I think all five of those senators are no longer serving. But, you know, that's a prime example of like the conversation between legislative fixes and, and executive orders very much was tied into that experience and that, of course, informs the characters that I'm creating. The Joel Kim Booster and Poppy Lu's characters, they play these insane twins and you mentioned, you asked me about the casting and I, yeah. I should mention, I, this ties into both the politics of it and the casting. So, Alison Jones brings us, of course, the funniest actors, period. Joel Kim Booster is Korean American, he nails the part of Jun Ho, Poppy Lu is Chinese American, she nails the part of the sister, Maylin. And. You know, neither Matt Murray, my co-creator, nor I are fans of what Hollywood usually does, which is either says "Eh, they all look alike. You don't need to acknowledge the different ethnicities or different subgroups or they just go, oh, well, you can't have both. So either get the sister to be Korean or get the brother to be Chinese. And we sort of looked at that and said, no, we found the two best actors to play these parts. They're hilarious. We knew the dad was going to be a billionaire and they were twins. So instead we leaned into the comedy and you find out that they are twins born of the same dad to two different moms at the same hospital at the same time. That's how diabolical the father is. Yes, And that's, and everyone now also says, oh, that must be based on Crazy Rich Asians. No, it's actually based on Matt Murray knew an Icelandic billionaire family back in the day, I think, when he was in college. And so those two characters are loosely based on that bizarro family more than anything else.
0: I also noticed, so uh, listeners should know, that you play a disgraced politician. His name is Garrett Modi. That is your name, Kalpan Modi. Kalpan
2: Modi, yeah. yeah.
0: So it's not a nod to uh, the Prime Minister of India.
2: No, I think it's <laughs> safe to say that our, our politics are fairly divergent. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and did you want to make him a politician because that's what you know, right? What you know?
2: No. So, and I'll tell you, so this I, I will touch on his name and also the first name, which I think is a fun story. So if we're looking for a redemption story, right? So when Matt and I were talking about what that looked like, at first I thought, oh, could he be, could he be a disgraced lawyer who's been mm-hmm. disbarred and is teaching like a learning annex class yeah. out of those old books? That's
0: literally community me, right?
2: though. <laughs> uh, well, right. <laughs> well, it's, that's community, but yes. then also it's like, there should be something a little grittier there. And then we were looking at what's the biggest, most public fall from grace, right? Somebody getting disbarred isn't going to make the news necessarily. right? But somebody like an Anthony Weiner before we found out all the truly abhorrent stuff about Anthony Weiner was – You almost believed that he believed everything he was saying when he would make these speeches on the floor of the house. But then that that fall from grace is something that's very relatable. And then started YouTubing clips of politicians. You even watch them at TMZ when TMZ gets politicians at at DCA, like at the Reagan airport. It doesn't matter who they are. They like cannot help themselves from talking. Yeah. Like, you know, half of the celebrities I know, myself included, like, TMZ shows up at the airport, you smile and wave, but like, I'm not trying to do an interview when I'm like getting off the plane. Politicians, my God, they just want to talk forever. Oh, TMZ is here. Let me share my story with them. So there was something brutally bizarre and almost sad about making him a politician. And then in the pilot episode, you find out, you know, he's drunk uh, walking on the BQE here in the city and, and a cop stops him and tries to take him into custody, he tries to bribe the cop. Right. First, he offers the cop 10 grand and then 100 grand. And The cop's like, sir, you, you really you can't bribe an officer. Finally, he goes, okay, I'll give you a million dollars. The cop's like, please, sir, you can't do this. And Then he goes, okay, I will give you, if you let me go, I will give you $1 billion. And Then, of course, he can't get prosecuted for bribery because he doesn't actually have a billion dollars. He's just wasted. That was based on a hockey player, Matt came up with this example. I I can't remember this guy's name, but it was late 80s, early 90s. Uh There's a hockey player who got pulled over for a DUI and actually started bribing the cop, went up to a billion (laughs) dollars. So it's an amalgam of like a a pre-sex offender Anthony Weiner and a hockey player (laughs) where we thought this fall from grace is way more interesting than a fall from grace from anyone else. So Garrett and his sister Mallory are named Garen Mallory because almost every role I've played, like I've played roles with Indian names and then, you know, a lot of folks in the Indian community go, how come his name can't be Seth or Andy? Mm-hmm. Then I play a guy named Lawrence or Seth on Designated Survivor and they go, how come his name can't be Samir? And you're like, OK, I get it because I it, truly representation does matter a mm-hmm. lot. But nobody's going to be happy with this conversation, right? right? Whether, his, whether he's got a, a white name or an Indian name and I take issue with even describing it that way, people are going to be either happy or upset. So, like, what do we do with my show? Like, I'm creating this show. And we thought, what a fun story if you find out that his parents moved to America and they love American television and their favorite show is Different Strokes. And they love Mrs. Garrett from Different Strokes. Like, she's so hardworking, Mrs. Garrett. And then they discover the facts of life and they're like, wait a second, Mrs. Garrett is in two different shows? She is truly the most hardworking person in America. Our firstborn son has to be named Garrett after Mrs. Garrett so that he's also hardworking. Then they get into family ties and they – like Mallory's a bit of a slacker but (laughs) she's got a charm. Let's name our daughter Mallory. Then, of course, Garrett becomes the slacker despite Mrs. Garrett being so hardworking. Mallory becomes the overachieving daughter despite the fact that the facts of life, Mallory is the slacker. So there's this whole like – I don't know if subversive is the right word for it, but there's this whole backstory of why they're named Garrett and Mallory. So originally it was Shaw, Garrett Shaw, and our set design guys had come up already with the Garrett Shaw promotional materials and the stuff that we needed for the election scenes right, right. and then we found out from legal that there is a garrett Shaw in america apparently and so the name didn't Does clear he have good politics <laughs> i don't know he might be a doctor or something yeah. and so we had to come up with a different name and the design guys were like it would really help us out if it could be a four-letter name because then we don't have to redesign all the posters we can just drop in the letters so i said all right well what about my real last name modi Cal Penn
0: is the creator and the star and one of the co-producers of Sunnyside. It is available for your delectation on Hulu. And how many episodes are you going to have? 11
2: episodes. The 11th one drops on uh, December 5th. So full streamable season. It was supposed to be 10 and they gave us one more, which is nice. So Hulu, NBC.com, Roku, and YouTube TV. We could just just name every technology (laughs) available. Well, except it's not on Amazon Prime or Netflix, but it's on all the other platforms.
0: So if you only subscribe to seven of them, you'll have access (laughs) to it. Cal, great to meet you.
2: Likewise. Thank you.
0: And now the spiel. The first day of official impeachment hearings went off without a hitch, which was bad news for House Republicans who are playing the full hitch defense. There were three constitutional scholars there who said what the president did was impeachable. And there was one who said it wasn't. The Republicans had argued for a more balanced panel of scholars, but I think if you surveyed constitutional scholars, it would indicate that the actual ratio of thought within the profession is probably something like 20 to 1, with the 20 being, of course, it's impeachable, and the 1 being maybe Jonathan Turley. So the Republicans should be happy to get the one. Jonathan Turley of George Washington Law School laid out a case that I found flawed, but it was based on actual precedent, actual philosophy, actual history, actual law. It wasn't based on hollering and smoke screens and Jim Jordan not wearing a sports coat. Here is
1: some of what Professor Turley had to say. We need to protect against bribery because we don't want anything like what happened with Louis Fourteenth and Charles II. That is the example he gave of bribery was accepting actual money as the head of state. So what had happened in that example that Morris gave as his example of bribery was that Louis XIV, who was a bit of a recidivist when it came to bribes, gave Charles II a huge amount of money as well as other benefits, including apparently a a French mistress, in exchange for uh, the secret treaty of Dover of 1670. You know, coming into today, I didn't think an analysis
0: of our mafia-like president's perfect phone call would hinge on whether the Sun King paid Charles II... And supplied him with a mistress. That kind of came out of left field. I mean, if supplying people with mistresses were abroad, then maybe Trump is more susceptible to that than, I don't know, javelin missile enticement. Turley went on to
1: say this. If you're going to accuse a president of bribery, you need to make it stick because you're trying to remove a duly elected president of the United States. Now, it's unfair to accuse someone of a crime, and when others say, well, those interpretations you're using to define the crime are not valid, and to say they don't have to be valid because this is impeachment. That has not been the standard historically
0: Look, I can argue with some of this. Everyone knows that high crimes and misdemeanors needn't be actual crimes on a criminal book. And just because past presidents have been impeached for actual crimes doesn't mean that this one can't be impeached if you don't have an actual literal criminal offense. Now, to be fair to Professor Turley, he's, he wasn't actually making just that argument. I also do not think Turley is there testifying because he has a financial stake in the Republican success. Those listeners, you might find it interesting to note that his former client is John Boehner, who sued the Obama administration on behalf of the Republicans in Congress. Turley, in fact, in his life, has taken plenty of pro-Democratic stances. He goes where his intellect steers him, though, as an eager talk show guest and interview subject, I do not doubt that he enjoys staking out this particular intellectual ground as it affords him a role as the leading and one of the only voices for one way of thinking that the Republicans in Congress are very, very eager to have heard. Turley took a bit of delight in the somewhat hostile questions from Democrats. That's fine. He used understandable, if not always compelling arguments. He even, I think unwittingly, developed a bit
1: of a motif So I don't think that dog will hunt in the 18th century. I don't think it'll hunt today. Well, that dog's 300 years old. It is dead. Fired like a dog.
0: Professor Turley bared his canines on another occasion. Even my dog
1: seems mad. And Loon is a golden doodle, and and they don't get mad. And then, after all that, he made this assertion. And I really don't have a dog in
0: this fight. Well, which is it, Professor Turley, do you, as you say, not have a dog in this fight? Or do you have a dog, specifically Luna, the disconcerted golden doodle? The reason I played a few long turly clips is to give him his say, but also to offer him up as a stark relief to the normal Republican way of doing business during these impeachment hearings. The Republicans, the guys who brought him there, his champions, they were bombastic. They were misleading. They were poorly spoken.
1: The clock and the calendar are seemingly dominating this, is irregardless of what anybody on this committee...
0: Irregardless? And then this one.
1: This kind of nepotism
0: isn't only wrong. Nepotism? That was ranking member Doug Collins and Republican lawyer Paul Taylor with those gems. Collins, who railed against the rules endlessly, tried at one point to argue that Trump wasn't investigating a political rival when he withheld missiles in order to get a Biden investigation. What he was really doing was following the law.
1: It is also the law of the land that we are supposed to ensure that countries given aid are not corrupt. And I think this is also something that's missing from this discussion as well. If the president has had a long-seated distrust of foreign companies, especially Ukraine and others, with a history of corruption. I made this statement earlier. It's in the report from the uh, Hipsy side, on our side. 68% of those polled in the Ukraine over the previous year had bribed a public official. Ukraine had corruption issues. It came back from the Obama administration, came through the Trump administration, and our rule is that they have to actually look at the corruption before giving taxpayer dollars.
0: Well, Congressman... You voted to give the aid. Therefore, if it was so proper to withhold aid without an assurance of honesty, you did that which was improper. Another talking point raised a few times in the proceedings was that during the Clinton impeachment, Jerry Nadler, Democrat of New York, who's the chair of the Judiciary Committee, argued that a wholly partisan impeachment would be bad for the country. Steve Shabbat, was one of a few Republicans who cited Jerry Nadler quotes from 1998.
1: Impeachment by one major party that's opposed by the other. And it's almost certain that it's going to result in the very divisiveness and bitterness that you so accurately warned us about back then. Mr. Chairman, a couple more quotes from a very wise Jerry Nadler from about two decades ago. Uh, Quote, the last thing you want, it's almost illegitimate, is to have a party-line impeachment. You shouldn't impeach the president unless it's a broad consensus of the American people.
0: Okay, so Steve Shabbat is now saying that Jerry Nadler was wise to warn against the impeachment of Bill Clinton. What was Steve Shabbat during the impeachment of Bill Clinton? Oh yeah, he was voting for the impeachment of Bill Clinton. Not just voting for it, he was one of the 15 House managers leading the impeachment of Bill Clinton. Here was a thing he argued at the time, quote, What message are we sending the youth of America if we abdicate our constitutional duty and allow perjury, obstruction of justice, and abuse of power to go unpunished? Interesting to hear him imply that Nadler's a hypocrite. Nice to hear the shabbat admits he got it all wrong back then. Here is a unified theory of impeachment. Don't impeach on party lines, president who didn't engage in impeachable behavior. In fact, don't impeach those presidents at all, but do impeach presidents who engage in impeachable behavior. And if that has to be on party lines, well, whose fault is that? Today's proceedings featuring, as they did, the only well-thought-out rebuttal to impeachment by an expert and a lot of nonsense and hoo-ha by the officials who brought them there got me to thinking, why don't Republicans make better arguments, not worse arguments, Steve post host of Morning Edition, tweeted recently that NPR, desirous of the Steel Man argument, which is the 180 degree version of the Straw Man. So let us hear the other side's best argument this is what he's after. He had Jonathan Turley on. He considered that the Steel Man argument. From what I've heard, all the arguments, it seems to be the best. And it's not great. But what NPR did was engaged in proper discussion and debate based on reasonable interpretation of basic facts. Good. Journalism should go there. So should argumentation. But then Inskeep went on to say that such a discussion was impossible with Jim Jordan or the other House Republicans who prefer not to make the reasonable argument, but insist on with great volume and verve in making the unreasonable one. Why? Why make the worse argument? I would guess it's because they think it works better. It could be that they can't tell which arguments work just as they can't tell that theirs is the worst argument, but I think they can. I suspect they need to make the unreasonable argument because a reasonable argument will depend on that specific attribute, reason, and the Republicans know that overall reason is not a quality that's in their favor. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader's real name, real first name is actually Daniel Schrader, but he changed it for professional reasons. Also, his last name was Tater. Gist producer Christina Dejosa once went to White Castle, while not high, only to discover the burgers were actually pretty awful. They're like the Grateful Dead of burger chains in that regard. The Gist. I have a Rottweiler named Rufus, and he's... All out of sorts, something about Louis XIV's payment to Charles the Second, he just can't let go of it. Umper Deperu duperu, and thanks for listening.